This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was, draw, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for all the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thank you, Anna, for reading God's word to us this morning. Uh, welcome. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here and really are glad that you're with us. I hope you feel welcome. I hope you'll stick around after the service and go across the street to hang out with our spring fling and eat some snowballs and have the kids do an Easter egg hunt and adults, if you want to join in, you can only have one, you can only find one Easter egg per adult. So got to leave the rest of the kids, but it's going to be a great day. It's a beautiful day. Uh, so I hope you'll stick around and go across the street and be with us for a good time. This morning, I was planning on finishing our series in the life of David uh, by looking at the end of 2 Samuel, uh, but this morning I felt led to finish uh, the life of David by preaching on Luke chapter 19, the triumphal entry of Jesus, this being Palm Sunday, to look at Jesus, the great son of David, uh, with you together. So I'm going to pray, uh, and we'll jump into our passage together, if you will pray with me. God, thank you that you are with us. We pray that... Uh, even as our passage ended, that they were hanging on the very words of Jesus, that by your Spirit you would cause us to hang on the very words of God, not the words of Daniel, but the words that are from you and to us. Would you give us minds to be illumined with your truth? Would you give us hearts that are tender and soft to receive what you want to to communicate to us this morning, and, and would you give us, Lord Jesus, a changed heart and a changed life to, to be willing to walk into the truth of, of what you will have for us this morning. We pray you would do this by your Spirit. Remove me, Jesus, would you be exalted. In your name we pray, amen. Well, Monday night, Coach, yes, all right, so we got some like hollering already. 
Some people want to boo. Uh, Monday night, Coach Roy Williams solidified himself as one of the best coaches of all time. And Duke fans, I know you want to boo. Coach K is also one of the best coaches of all time. So don't, yeah, okay. There's some clapping to that. Uh, but Coach Roy Williams is undoubtedly now considered one of the best uh, leaders in college basketball, winning another national championship. People like me doubted Coach Williams. Uh, I would question uh, some of his uh, strategies during the games. But even if you were like me, now you have to believe in Coach Williams. You have to follow and trust because he's brought national championships to, to Chapel Hill. Right? So, okay, maybe not the best illustration for all the Duke fans in here. But every one of us wants a leader uh, that we can put our hope in. Everybody wants a leader that we believe is going to bring greatness, right? Uh, if you grew up maybe on characters like Robin Hood, reading books and watching movies about uh, characters like Robin Hood who would fight for the good, or maybe you read and watched Marvel uh, comic books or movies like Spider-Man and the Avengers or the recent Netflix series Luke Cage, leaders who bring about change for the better. It's why we think political years and election years are so big. From the national level of the next president to the Supreme Court nominee to the local level, as Christy shared this morning, everyone has hopes that someone will be elected who's going to bring about change for the better. Now, we can be disillusioned with trusting authority, but deep down, every one of us wants to follow a great leader. Every one of us wants to put our hope in someone that we believe will bring good things. If you remember how we started this series in First and Second Samuel, Israel, the nation of Israel, wanted to be like other nations. They wanted their own king. They wanted a leader to lead them. And God gave Saul... And then David would become king. David would be the king who would lead Israel in triumphant battle. He was a mighty warrior. Israel was at its pinnacle in the day of King David. He established Jerusalem as the capital. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He proposed to build God a place for God to dwell, the temple, though Solomon, his son, would build it. The pinnacle of Israel's history was the rule and reign of King David. And we just read in Luke chapter 19, Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And the crowds are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Other gospel writers recorded that the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David. I mean, the crowds are jacked. They are excited because this is the son of David. This is our king who's going to return Israel to its glory days. Here is our leader who's going to transform our lives and give us hope, the son of David, that's going to put Israel back on top, the king who's going to overpower all enemies. Yet Jesus comes in a very different way than expected. Very different than expected. The Israelites had great expectations for the son of David. And here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt. The culmination of Israel's history, the great king coming to win God's people back, coming to win Jerusalem back, and this culmination is sort of anticlimactic. Jesus riding a colt. 
and palm branches being laid down as the path through which Jesus would travel. Palm branches were a very common people's red carpet being rolled out for Jesus. The coming of this king was very different than expected. And unmet expectations can be crushing. You know, one of the things that I do in premarital counseling as I get together with couples who are about to get married is, uh, and I do this in large part because it was done to us, is to get a couple thinking about expectations for their marriage. Anything from who's going to do what around the house and chores to who's going to manage the budget to you know, who, how often are you going to eat meals together, how many children will you have, what are expectations of sex within marriage. I want to get the couple processing their own expectations because people can lose heart in marriage when their expectations are unmet. And many of the Israelites will lose heart with trusting Jesus because they had different expectations of his kingship and of his kingdom. In fact, even Jesus' closest disciples will desert him in his final week on earth. You know, expectations are what you anticipate will happen. But if you are married here, once you get married, you realize that the actual marriage is different than, than expected, but it's way better because of the differences. Right? For instance, you get married and you think, man, we're going to have nice sit-down dinners m- multiple times a week. Not a bad expectation, but in marriage, you come to really enjoy a long walk around the block more than a nice sit-down dinner. You get married and you're attracted to your spouse because of their fun and witty personality, or maybe they get dressed up real nice when you go out and you're attracted to them, but in marriage, you become attracted when you see your spouse's consistency and depth. You get attracted when you see them reading a children's book to your child with spit up all over their shirt. It's different than expected, but it's better. The Israelites have high and great expectations of the son of David, this king who is coming. Some of the expectations will be met, but to their great surprise, many of their expectations will go unmet. And the way of Jesus' coming is way better because of the differences. Let me ask you a pretty simple question this morning. Are you following this king? Are you following this leader? And let me ask you a very simple, uh, or let me offer you a very simple invitation. I want you to follow this leader and this king. No matter how you come in this morning, there is an invitation for you to follow. Now, in order to answer those questions and to respond to that invitation, I want us to look at what it means for us to follow this great son of David, this king of kings. The first thing that I want to point out that that it means is that we believe that all that we have is his. All that we have is his. Look at verses 28 and following. Jesus tells his disciples, go to the village, untie a colt, and bring it to me. And the disciples are are like, well, what if they ask us, what in the world do you think you're doing? What do you think think you're doing untying and taking my colt? And Jesus tells them, tell them the Lord has need of it. I'm sure the disciples are thinking, all right, we're, we're following you, Jesus, and you have blown us away by some incredible things, and so they're just kind of stepping out in faith. We're going to go. And they find the colt, as Jesus said. They untie it, and the owners ask, what are you doing? 
and they say, the Lord has need of it. And the owners put up no fight. (laughs) Take my colt. It's the Lord's. The Lord has need of it. It'd be pretty cool if this worked for me. I mean, I was, we're in a church office, and I just walk over to Timothy's office, and I'm like, hey, bro, I need that laptop. And he's like, what are you doing, Daniel? I have need of it. I have, and he just let me take it. It'd be pretty incredible uh, to be able to just say, hey, I need, a, I need it, and you just let me have it. This would never work, though. It would never work because it's not my laptop. It's Timothy's. This works for the disciples because the cult is Jesus's. In his kingship over all things, he owns everything. And so the owners let the cult go because the king has purpose for this cult and he can use it for whatever means he wants. To follow Jesus as king means that we believe all that we have is his. He has given us everything that we own. We are mere stewards for his purposes. King Jesus has given you your education. He has need of it. Will you let him use it for his kingdom's sake? King Jesus has given you your place to live. He has need of it. Will you let him use it how he wants? King Jesus has given you your job, and he has need of it. Will you give him your vocation and let him use it and use you in it. King Jesus has given you your money, your retirement account, and he has need of it. Will you let him tell you how to use it for his kingdom's purposes? King Jesus has given you your sexuality, and he has need of it. Will you let him rule over your sex life? King Jesus has given you your children, and he has need of them. Will you let him call them and use them however he wants? To follow Jesus is to gladly submit to him and believe nothing is mine, everything is his. And if the Lord has need of it, we joyfully let him use it for his purposes. Now, I'm I'm not saying this is easy. In fact, this is hard. I mean, our king doesn't come into into Jerusalem riding in a BMW. He's not trying to impress everyone. He comes into Jerusalem knowing he's headed to the cross. And he would pay the ultimate cost. And there is a cost if we want to follow Jesus. But hear me. The cost of living joyfully submitted to Jesus is so much better than living life trying to control everything, trying to be our own kings, living life and trusting everything to the rightful place of Jesus' ownership is way more freeing, way more exhilarating, and way more fulfilling than anything this world might offer us. If you've ever been fishing, it's been a while since I've fished, but I grew up fishing and I used to go fly fishing in Colorado during the summertime, and it's pretty amazing when, if you've ever fished, when you hook a fish, right? When you hook the fish, and you know the hook goes deep, and you're like, I've got this fish. It's not going anywhere. Now, the fish doesn't seem to understand that. The fish puts up a fight. Some fish fight more than others, but in the midst of the fight, it's only the fish 
that loses blood and suffers. I mean, as the fisherman, you want to like talk some sense and come on, man, I've got you. You're not going anywhere. Just give up. Come on shore. Come on in the boat. I've got you. Jesus is the great king of kings, the leader of all leaders. Our life is his. And if his hook of grace and mercy is in you, he is calling you to come perhaps for the first time this morning or to come again and surrender your life again or to let go of a certain area of life that you've been resisting. Why fight? Why resist? It will only be you who suffers. Get in his boat. It is a good thing to follow our king and to surrender. The second thing it means to follow Jesus as king is to hope and trust that all that is broken will be fixed. They sit Jesus on the colt, which had never been ridden. That's a little kind of comment there that you could read right over. A little odd to put that in there. It's never been ridden, a horse that had never been ridden. Yet Jesus, the king, sits on the horse, and it doesn't buck, it doesn't kick, processes Jesus right into Jerusalem. And the whole multitude of the disciples are rejoicing and shouting with loud voice. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you've ever heard or read a Palm Sunday sermon, you often hear people talking about Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem as an expression of Jesus' humility. That he's not coming on a chariot, he's coming lowly on a donkey. Jesus is coming humble. He's coming humble because he's headed to the cross. His humility will be expressed on the cross. But donkeys and colts were actually the preferred mode of transportation for royal figures in the ancient Near East. So I heard one pastor state it like this. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt was him riding into Jerusalem with nothing to prove. It would be the modern-day version of him coming in a vehicle that's a plodding, reliable, built-for-comfort vehicle like a limousine. So Jesus on a colt is not a brash, ostentatious display of power and strength, but it's also not this lowly, self-effacing statement. It's a legitimate demonstration of power. And the disciples knew this, which is why they break out in praise, and it's why everybody is shouting, here is our king, the blessed one, the son of David. And they're expecting their king to display power, to kick some Roman tail, to set up his kingdom, and to bring about peace and wholeness. They are expecting a warrior greater than David who would slay more than the tens of thousands, this king would, would wipe out Roman rule and establish Israel as premier yet again. This son of David would be the leader to reestablish and return Israel to greatness, to make Israel great again. But his disciples would have their expectations crushed because he was not coming, wielding a sword of power, but rather riding a colt to a cross. And the cross is a very different weapon than expected. But the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the cross is the power of God unto salvation. See, Jesus does come in power. 
He comes yielding power, but it's not the, like the powers of the kingdoms of this world. It's not brash. It's not arrogant. It's rather a power poured out through what appears foolish, through what seems like weakness, the cross of Christ. The crucified Jesus is the power of God. The cross is the power that brings peace to the world that brings reconciliation between God and man. The cross is the power to reconcile us to one another. It is the power to reconcile the created world back to the way God intended it to be. Did you pick up on verse 40? I mean, Jesus is telling the angry Pharisees who the Pharisees are trying to silence the crowds, and in verse 40, Jesus says, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. That's an echo that the created world is going to be reconciled through this king. That Jesus is going to bring peace and restoration to the whole world. Romans 8 says even the creation is groaning for this restoration. Jesus, the great son of David, the king of kings, is what all of creation has been waiting for. And if humanity will not shout his praise, creation will cry out and give him praise. The cross is the pinnacle of salvation. It is the power of God to restore a broken world. If you've been reading the news this week, the chemical attack in Syria, over 80 dead. We bomb Syria. Russia brings a warship to where we launch those, the missiles from. Syria unleashes another chemical attack. Timothy mentioned just a minute ago, Church in Egypt bombed, 21 dead. Our world is messed up. A few weeks ago, I watched a North Korean woman share at a large conference about the great oppression that happens in her country, the oppression that is heart-wrenching. Wednesday at our Lenten prayer service, we read about the anniversary, April 4th, of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Our world is messed up. I read about the political landscape of our country, the far right and the far left, and I get exhausted at the division within our country. We live in a tense time. Our world is messed up. I get together with people in our congregation and I hear of deep emotional hurt and pain caused by relationships. I hear of marital struggle, I hear of loss of jobs, I hear of rebellious children, I hear of addiction. We ourselves are messed up, and we need peace. We need shalom. We need wholeness, healing, and restoration. When you look at our world, what burdens your heart because of the world's brokenness? Jesus can and will fix it. When you look at our city, Durham, what breaks your heart because of the brokenness in our city? Jesus can, and he will fix it. When you look at your own life, what gets you discouraged and disheartened because of your own brokenness? Jesus can, and he will fix it. What it means to follow this king is to trust that he can and will fix all that is broken in our world. This leads me to my last point of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That through his great love, we must count the cost of following him. 
Let me, let me talk about his love first, and then we're going to come back to what I mean by counting the cost. Look back at our passage. Jesus draws near to Jerusalem in verse 41. He sees the city, and he wept over it. He wept over it. Don't, again, don't rush over that. Jesus is the king who cries. And not just a single tear. He sobs. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps because he sees the brokenness and the lack of peace. Many Old Testament prophets personify the city of Jerusalem, the city that represents God's people and God's place. And many of the Old Testament prophets describe Jerusalem as a whore, as a, as a harlot. That's how the prophets describe Jerusalem. And the Old Testament prophet Hosea says that God will allure the harlot. God will allure her with his love. In and through Christ, what God is doing is luring us, alluring us, wooing us with his great love. That Jesus weeps over your pain. Jesus weeps over the brokenness and the divisions within our world. And instead of demanding us to trust and follow him, he's romancing us to trust and follow him. Jesus enters Jerusalem during Passover. And during Passover, there would have been the bleeding of many lambs getting ready to be prepared to be the sacrifice. You would have heard the sound of lambs bleeding all throughout the city. And here comes Jesus into Jerusalem, not one of many lambs, but the Lamb of God, who would lay down his life once and for all as a final sacrifice. And then Jesus enters the temple, and he drives out the, those in the temple that are, that are making money, and he teaches daily. The whole last week of Jesus' life, he's teaching in the temple. And what Jesus is doing is he's declaring to his people I am bringing everything you've ever wanted. I am the temple, Jesus says. I am the sacrifice. I am the high priest. And then in John 12, 32, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I will draw you to myself. To, draw, to say to draw is another way of saying woo. I will allure I will romance you to myself. See, the cross is not only a display of power for the restoration of all things, it is the heart of the love of God toward us, his people. This is our king, a crying king, so moved by love that he would give his life and death on a cross for you and for me. And the kingdoms of this world the people of the kingdom die for their king. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus the king dies for his people. What wondrous love is this? That our king would lay down his life. Would you be drawn to him by his love for you? Because once you are in love with the king, you'll do anything for him. Once you're gripped by his love, you will follow him whatever the cost might be. Think about a dating relationship or marriage if you're married. The person you're dating or married to, if they tell you, you know, they're going to do whatever you ask from them within reason, 
within reason, because they're supposed to. Compared to someone you're dating or married to who is looking for ways to show their love to you because they love you. They're looking to show you their love because they're in love. That's very different. If you live out of obligation for another, you'll respond and you'll do things asked of you, but if you live out of love for another, you're going to look for ways to display that love. And every single one of us follow that which we love. If you love yourself, you're going to follow whatever you think will make you prosper and give you the life that you want. If you follow the version of America and you love your version of America, you're going to follow whichever political party or policies that you think will make your version of America happen. But if you love King Jesus, you will follow him no matter the cost on your life. And there is a cost to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls us, he bids us come and die. To to come and die. To live our lives in sacrifice. To live our lives seeking the peace of the city, the peace within our own world. To lay our lives down. To fight for those who know no peace. Those who don't know peace with God those who don't know peace within themselves, to fight for the peace that others are experiencing injustice, to fight for peace within the city of Durham, within our society and culture, within the nations of the world. And when in love with Jesus, we will use our own power. We'll use our power not to be brash and not to be arrogant, but to humbly seek the good of others to seek peace, and to spread wholeness because we love our King. And He's called us to sacrifice and to give and to serve and to go. And if we're in love with our King, we'll do whatever He asks us to do. In December of 1937, during World War II, the Japanese army invaded Nanking, China. Some of you know this as the rape of Nanjing or Nanking. Uh, Over 600,000 people killed in Nanking. The Japanese army raped and pillaged women and young girls. Any female of any age was a target. In the Japanese army, they would nail Chinese men and women to the wall for torture. The Japanese had a contest of who could kill 100 Chinese soldiers the fastest. And one day, 15,000 Chinese soldiers were killed. And the only thing that stood in the way of the Japanese army inflicting even more deaths was a small group of Western missionaries. These missionaries created all on their own something they called the zone of safety. And as long as Chinese were in their zone of safety, the Japanese army would not touch them. Couldn't remove them from the zone of safety. And so the missionaries would travel all around Nanking, with this made-up zone of safety, pulling Chinese into their zone, and the Japanese would pull back. What incredible courage. Incredible courage. An estimated 250,000 Chinese citizens were spared because people were driven by the love of Jesus to lay down their lives for the sake of others. When we are romanced by our King, 
who laid down his life for us, we will lay down our lives for others. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We will look for ways to use our power for kingdom purposes. And all that God has given to us, we will want to use for his sake. We will gladly submit and gladly proclaim, the Lord has need of it. Use it for your glory and for your kingdom's purposes. There's a cost. There is a cost to follow Jesus. But let me tell you that the best life now is not in comfort. It's not in the applause of others. It's, it's not moving up, whatever that looks like for you in this world. It's not a nice and easy life. The best life that you can experience now is to follow this king. And he came in a very different way than expected. And he might do things in your life in ways that are different than you expect. But the way of Jesus and following him are way better than we could ever imagine. Will you follow him? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would woo us, draw us by your great love to surrender gladfully and joyfully. Lord, even now as we close our eyes and, and we're praying together, I know there are people here that, that have been resisting for a long time to follow you even for the first time. Would they see the outstretched arms of a Savior, body broken, blood shed, and would you draw them that no matter what's gone on in their life, no matter what sins they've committed, that your love is greater and you are offering reconciliation, redemption, and restoration. Lord, for those of us in here who, who said, we, we follow you, Lord. We follow you, Jesus. There are times when we want to lead. There are times when we want to have control. And Lord, deep down inside, there are actually maybe some areas that we still really don't want to let go of. God, I pray that we'd stop fighting. God, I pray that we'd, we'd stop resisting and I pray that we would joyfully relinquish and experience the joy of your salvation, the joy of following you wholeheartedly. Lord, would you remove divided hearts and give us one whole heart devoted to you because we see your heart of love in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.